Thank you guys so much. Let me get situated here. The Apostle Paul never had these problems, did he? <laughs> Sometimes when I turn my <coughs> iPad into landscape mode, um, it messes up the arrangement of my notes, and so I can only see half the words, and so uh, I forget to lock the screen in uh, regular portrait mode. Um, but uh, that's what happened. So last week, we began a series in the book of Acts, and, um, and I, I hope that you will be encouraged over the next many months as we work through the book of Acts. Um, we're going to spend uh, the good part of this year just sort of walking uh, with a, uh, a deliberate pace and looking at this wonderful book. And, and I mentioned last week as we began that these first three weeks, last week, this week, next week on the third, are going to be a, a series within a series. And so a mini-series. Um, because the first three and a half chapters, I'm sorry, the first chapter and a half of this book through about um, the first uh, portion of chapter two until really Peter's sermon at Pentecost, uh, just the first chapter and a half uh, are, are God's reminder to us of all the ways, not all the ways, but many ways that he provides for the church. Um, God provides the church with a mission. And that's what we considered last week. He provides leaders for the church to guide us in mission. That's what we're going to consider this week. And then he provides the Holy Spirit to empower us in mission. And so this morning, we're going to consider how God provides leaders for the church. And our passage is Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And so if you haven't already, let me invite you to make your way in your Bible to Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew rack around you. It's page 909. Um, and if that doesn't seem like a good option, you can also follow along in the bulletin. But do one of those. Grab a Bible. Turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 12 through 26, but first we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your words remain forever. Your word is living and it is active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And it pierces between bone and marrow, joint and sinew. It judges the thoughts and intentions of man. It gets to the heart. And so I pray this morning as, as we read as we read sort of a flyover passage, like flyover states, passages that don't get much attention in Scripture, um, that, that you would do a work through your word that only you can do, the word, the, a work that you intend, that your word would not return void, and we trust in confidence that it won't, but that you will open our eyes and unstop our ears and give us receptive hearts to, to take away from this exactly what you want us to take away. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, beginning in verse 12, this is God's holy word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a, a Sabbath day journey away. Now, I usually don't break in, uh, but even this morning as I was reading the passage again and making some last-minute notes, they were only permitted by Jewish customary law to travel between one and two hours a day on the Sabbath. Two hours max would have been uh, what they would have walked. And so a Sabbath day's journey is about a 20 to 30-minute walk. Okay? Um, 
So they're not coming from a long way. They're outside Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. And all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, again, parenthetical note, it's not just men. We already know there's women there gathered. This is one of the Bible's uses of brethren, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a kadama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men, so, of, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles." May God write his word upon all of our hearts. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, after the resurrection, he spent 40 days with his disciples. And just before he ascended into heaven, he left his disciples with a mission. It's the mission that we considered last week in Acts 1.8. So just before Jesus Christ left this earth, and descended back to the Father. He left his disciples with a mission. And that means, friends, that he has left us with a mission. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, it's a clear mission. It's, it's a simple mission. But it is not an easy mission. It's very straightforward. That doesn't mean that it's easy. Now, I mentioned last word, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And, and the Greek word for witness is martyr. The very word itself implies that being a witness is hard. Being a witness is costly. Being a witness for Jesus is sacrificial. And because it is hard, because it is costly, because uh, it is sacrificial, we are not meant to go it alone. We're meant to work together. And so when Jesus left this earth, this is one of the, uh, the beautiful things that he's done. When he left this earth, he did not leave us alone. 
When he left, he gave us the Holy Spirit and he's given us one another. He didn't call us to himself and then take off and then just leave us alone to figure it out for ourselves. He's given us one another. He's given us the church. And he has given us leaders within the church to help guide us along in this mission. So a few moments ago, I hope you were paying attention. Uh, many of you weren't. Um, <laughs> but uh, a- after the passing of the peace, Ethan read from Numbers 11. And the reason that I wanted Ethan to read from Numbers 11 is because here, here's the background and the context. Numbers chapter 11, um, not, not too long before that, they had fled. The, the Israelites had made their exodus from Pharaoh, and God is providing for them manna. But they're already beginning to complain. And in Numbers 11, early on in that chapter, they begin, to play, they begin to complain to Moses. Look, when we were in Egypt, we had fish to eat. We had cucumbers. We had melon. We had leek. We had onions. We didn't have this flat, tasteless bread. And, and so they're beginning to complain, and, and, and they're forgetting that, yes, they had, they had different kinds of food, better foods, but they were also a captive people. They were also enslaved. And so leading this group of complainers was was a challenge for Moses, not simply because of the situation, but because of the number. There were so many of them. It was too much for one man. And that's what Moses says, what Ethan read. This is too much for me. And so the Lord in his wisdom says, I want you to appoint uh, elders to appoint officers over the people who will come alongside you and take their stand with you. And that has been God's model for leadership ever since. It is a plurality of elders. For thousands of years now, God's design for leaders in his church, for leadership in his church, is a plurality of elders to lead his people in mission because it's too much for one individual. And that's God's That's God's approach to leadership, to a mission, whether that mission is a journey towards the promised land or whether that mission is to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so here's here's the setting of today's passage. About 30 minutes after Jesus ascended, the the disciples gathered to pray. There was about 120 of them, and, and that number is really important. Uh, Because in Jewish law, 120 is the minimum requirement to establish your own community council with leaders. In Jewish law, you had to have a core group of 120 to be recognized by law with uh, your own requirements. And so I want you to understand already, as the disciples were gathering, the wheels were starting to turn. And they were thinking, how do we formalize this loose collection of Jesus' followers into a Christian council with leaders, into a church? That's the setting, and with that in mind, I've got four things that I want to share. Four thoughts that you'll see there in your bulletin. But first, I just want to make one clarifying comment. What we see in this passage is the appointment of a new apostle. A new apostle, a man who would take Judas' place, who would come alongside the remaining 11 to lead the church. So what we see is the appointment of a new apostle, but I want to make this distinction, I'll be very clear. Apostles and elders are not the same. 
elders in the church today and, and even elders in the New Testament church because we, this, this takes place in around the year 30 A.D. Luke wrote it 30 years later in around 60, 61 A.D. And it's, it's the late 60s, the early 70s of the first century that we begin to see Paul appointing elders in all the towns that he went about. On his missionary journeys, as he went, he would establish elders in those various towns. And so whether they were elders in the New Testament or whether they're elders today, elders carry on many apostolic functions. Elders have been entrusted with the apostolic message, but the office of elder is not the same as the office of apostle. So we believe, and really the church has believed for most of its history, that the office of apostle was given at a specific time for a specific purpose. And when, when John died on the island of Patmos in the early 90s, the office of apostle died with him. And so I really want you to understand that there is a close connection, a very, very close connection between the office of elder that we continue today and the office of apostle that it no longer continues. But, but they're not the same thing. And yet, from this passage, we can see how God provide, uh, provided leaders for his church. He provided leaders then, and he still provides even now. And so I'm using the word leader this morning throughout the bullet, the, the outline, because the office of elder hadn't yet been established, at least in the New Testament. That's really what I have in mind, elders. And so a lot of what I'm going to share this morning applies to, applies to elders. As the men that God has called to lead this particular church, I want them to, uh, to have something to take away this morning. And I want you, as you think about here in a moment, when we adjourn from the worship service and we go have lunch and then uh, into our congregational meeting and you as members of the church will have the opportunity to elect a new elder, Chris Stokes. So the, the reason that I want you to uh, pay particular attention, friends, is because even if you will never be an elder, is that a double negative? You may never be an elder. You may never be a leader in Christ's church in the way that we're going to consider this morning, but you have a responsibility to pray, promote, put forth the kind of men uh, that Scripture uh, refers to. So it doesn't mean, I don't mean that this sermon only applies to elders. Each of these thoughts, I believe, have, have particular applications for every Christian. So I want you to engage with me. Here's the first thought. Leaders are, are meant to be men of unity and priority. Leaders, and I'm particularly, again, thinking of elders, but again, this can, be, this can be true for any leadership role in the church, but it must be particularly true for elders, are men of unity and priority. And so I want you to, uh, did your mom or teacher ever tell you to put your thinking cap on? I want you to take the thinking cap off and put your imagination cap on. Right? I want you to imagine what must have been going through the minds of the disciples who were gathered in this upper room. Right? It's, it's few hours now, probably, after Jesus has ascended. And I want you to just imagine with me what must have been going on in their minds specifically the remaining 11 apostles, what they must have been feeling and experiencing. Jesus, their Lord and leader, 
had been crucified about a month earlier, 40 days roughly, 43 days. He, he had been crucified, and the shock and pain of that were still very real. Can you imagine being a witness to that? Jesus, their Lord and leader, had been crucified. That was still fresh in their, in their minds, and yet Jesus didn't remain dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, and he spent the next 40 days with the disciples. And if you were a, if you were a fly on the wall, you might have heard one of these 120-plus disciples say, you know, I, I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. I, I saw Jesus die with my own eyes, but I've also seen him alive, and I actually touched him. This is just too much to take in. I don't understand it. I committed my life to him, and then I saw him die, but now I've seen him alive. I don't know what to make of it. And just as the disciples were recovering, imagine the emotional roller coaster this took them on. Jesus, their Lord and leader, died a gory, horrific death. He's taken away from them and three days given back to them. Now, we know he told them that was going to happen, but they still didn't get it. They, they still didn't understand it. They still didn't buy it. And so just as the disciples were recovering from the emotional roller coaster of his death and resurrection, what does he do? He leaves them again. He leaves them again. He ascends to the Father. And when he leaves them, he leaves them with a seemingly impossible mission. And so I want you to, I want you to imagine and try to feel what these men and women have experienced over the last month and a week. Jesus, their Lord and leader, the one who changed their life, died a horrific death, miraculously rose. They think he's back, and then he goes again. And when he goes, his parting words are, you're going to be a martyr. They would have heard that in their own tongue. You're going to be a martyr. And so now I want you to flesh out your imaginations a bit more with me. In the days after Jesus' uh, resurrection, one of their friends met his demise. Judas took the money that he had gained from his betrayal of Jesus, and he bought a field. And Luke, is, Luke, who's the author of Acts, doesn't tell us here, but we know from Matthew's gospel that he hung himself. He hung himself in that field, and then Luke records that he fell and this gory scene unfolded. I want you to imagine the pain that brought. Judas. Now his name, his name has been forever marred, right? But he was one of their friends. He's one of their ministry partners. There was no glee surrounding his death. There was only pain and sorrow and regret the other disciples, they must have been shocked also, thinking, you know, we loved this guy. We listened to this guy. We, we trusted and followed this guy. And so I want you to imagine what they were thinking and feeling. Within about a month's time, they had lost their Lord twice, and they had lost a dear friend, ministry partner, and church leader. This was a tough time for these early Christians. And it's times like these when leaders are tempted and tested. One of the great dangers of Christian leadership is division and disunity. 
One of the great dangers of Christian leadership is division and disunity, and that danger is the greatest when times are tough. You know, I don't think it's far-fetched to imagine. Now, I can't, I can't prove that a conversation like this took place, but I can at least imagine a conversation like this taking, taking place. You know, as the remaining 11 apostles are, are gathered uh, in the intervening days, and one apostle saying to another, you know, I never, I never really liked that Judas. I always thought he was a bit of a snake. And, and then accusations began to begin to be hurled. You know, how couldn't you see it? He was your bunkmate. You mean you had no read on this guy? I don't know that a conversation looked back like that took place, but I do know this is one of the toughest times imaginable for them. Jesus, their Lord, had been crucified, given back to them, and then left them again. One of their friends, a dear friend, even though he was the betrayer, still doesn't take the pain away. And it's in times like these when leaders are threatened by division and disunity. That's why verse 14 is so powerful. It says all these, it's the, it's now it's talking about the remaining 11 apostles, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And that word accord, it means without dissent. It means with one mind, or it means unified. And so, in one of the toughest times imaginable, when their character is tested, when their friendship is tested, rather than being driven apart in disunity, they remained unified, and they kept their priorities in place. It says they were devoted to prayer. And so, for my fellow elders... You know, I, I pray that we never face a tough time like this one. I pray that CPC never faces a tough time like this, this unimaginable time. But we will face tough times. Every church does. We face tough times, and, and good leaders, godly leaders, must remain unified, and we must keep our priorities in place. And so even if you're not an elder or you don't have a role of leadership, your role is to put forth to put forth good, godly men who are committed to unity, who are committed to priority and to pray for them. And so leaders must be people, must be men of unity and priority. Here's a second thought. Leaders must guard against temptation. And, and I specifically have in mind the temptation for self-glory and self-gain. That's what took Judas down. Now listen, again, this is true for every leader. It's true whether you're an elder or a Sunday school teacher or a diaconal assistant or whatever. With leadership comes greater temptation. And so somewhere along the way, Judas's priorities stopped aligning with Jesus's priorities. Judas was more concerned with an earthly kingdom and having an, a place of prominence in whatever kingdom Jesus was going to establish. And we know this was a temptation for other apostles as well, because at least on two different occasions in the Gospels, they say, Jesus, they're having a little internal war. Can I sit closest to you? Can I sit in the place of prominence at your right hand? When you do that kingdom thing you're going to do that you've told us about, can I be, can I be on your cabinet? Can I be third in the line of succession? This temptation for self-glory and self-gain, it was present for all of the apostles, but it got its hooks deep into Judas. 
And I want you to, I want you to see Judas's demise and downfall clearly. You know, I, I think when it comes to Judas, again, it's, it's not really a name that we use. You know, it's, it's not, it doesn't make the top ten boy names anymore, like, kind of like Adolf. You know, you don't really, that's kind of done. You know, we, we're not going to use that one anymore. Um, Judas, his name is written in history. Uh, but I think sometimes we apply revisionist history to Judas. Or, or, or we adopt a sort of hyper-Calvinistic view to explain him away. Here's what I mean. We know very clearly from Scripture that it was predestined and prophesied that Judas would betray Jesus. But friends, Judas was still culpable for his sins, and he was still called as an apostle. So Peter said, He was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. In other words, Judas wasn't a fake apostle. Judas performed miracles. He proclaimed the gospel. For a season, the Lord used Judas to build the kingdom. And so let's not, let's not apply revisionist history to Judas and say that he was just a plant from the very beginning. He wasn't. He was numbered among the others. He was given his share of ministry. The Lord worked through him until Judas was given over to self-glory and to self-gain. And he betrayed Jesus. He betrayed his friends. So my, my favorite commercial on TV right now is um, it's the AT&T commercial where the guy is sitting in the chair at the tattoo parlor. Do you know this one? And, uh, and the tattoo artist says, I am one of the tattoo artists in town. And the guy says, don't you mean one of the best? And he says, yeah, something like that. And then near the end of the commercial, the guy says, aren't you supposed to draw that out first? And he goes, stay in your lane, bro. <laughs> the point of the commercial is this, and I actually watch it several times. To actually, I, I, I can probably recite to you the commercial, but I didn't know what it was about. But the point of the commercial is that good isn't good enough when it comes to cell coverage. Right? That just being good isn't good enough. And I think there's something similar at work here in the leadership of the church. Good isn't good enough. The job of leaders is to point to Jesus only and always. Is to point to Jesus. Our only gain as leaders, again, whether it's an elder, a Sunday school teacher, a diaconal assistant or whatever, our only gain is his gain. The problem is Judas didn't stay in his lane. He got caught up in self-glory that belonged to Jesus and wasn't his. He got caught up in self-gain. And, and when, when we as leaders forget that our only gain is Christ's gain, that the only reason that we've been given any kind of leadership role is to point others to Jesus, we can fall into, uh, the, the, the temptation gets its hooks in us. And I want you to understand, we must never think that this couldn't happen to us. You look at Judas and say, yeah, that, I would never do that. 
Peter, the one making the speech, said something very similar about a month earlier. All these other yokels, they may deny you, Lord. I mean, you know what kind of guys you call. I mean, look at them. All these other guys may, but, but not me, not I. We must never think that it couldn't happen to us. Leaders must guard against temptation for self-glory and self-gain, not thinking, hey, it happens to guys like Judas. It happens to guys like Peter. But it couldn't happen to us. I am keenly aware of the indwelling sin that remains in me and all the temptations that come with being an elder and particularly as an elder, a pastor. And, and I, I believe the words of Robert Murray McShane, who was an old Scottish pastor. I, I believe the words that he said of himself are just as true of me. And he said, I am convinced that the seeds of every known sin still linger in my heart. We must never think that it couldn't happen to us. Leaders, especially, must guard against temptation. This is true for elders, it's true for deacons, it's true for every Christian. Friends, we must be vigilant to guard against temptation, to fight against temptation. We must run to Jesus by the power of the gospel. We must constantly say to ourselves, I must decrease so that he can increase. We must guard against temptation. Here's the third thought. Leaders are few in number. Now, there's a sense in which every Christian is called to be a leader. But when it comes to those who are called to lead the church, particularly in the office of elder, who are given the apostolic message and entrusted with apostolic authority, leaders are few. And so after Judas committed suicide, the disciples turned to prayer and scripture. And by the way, that is a, that is a, this passage provides a wonderful model for how the church should deal with difficult times, any time for that matter. I mean, think about this. In one of the most difficult seasons imaginable, Luke records the first thing they did was gather for prayer and Scripture. And when they opened the Scriptures, I love this, they opened the Scriptures for encouragement and, and for um, direction, and they read from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Psalm 69 says, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And then... Let another take his office. Can, can I go on a trail just for a moment? I, I've always found this, this whole passage interesting because it opens a window and shows us how the early church used the Old Testament scriptures. Right? How the early church used the Old Testament. And I've used this passage to show hyper-literalists that the apostles were not hyper-literalists. Let me explain that. Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 are not about this event with Judas at all. They're psalms where David was lamenting his enemies, where he was crying out to God for help because men were on, on his heels attacking him. Those psalms, 69 and 109, are not about Judas at all. They're, they're not even truly messianic psalms. Now, all Scripture points to Jesus in some way. But they had no, when David wrote those psalms, and he wrote both of them, they had no application to this event. And so I love what John Stott says. The early church is searching for guidance. And Stott says, these two scriptures, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, seem to Peter and the believers adequate general guidance 
because of what Dr. Longenecker calls the exegetical principle of analogous subject. Now, now that's a mouthful. <laughs> you know what it means? It means the apostles were looking for biblical guidance, and so they took two Old Testament passages and proof-texted them. They took two Old Testament passages that had nothing to do with what was going on in their place, and they just kind of pulled them, and they had shoddy hermeneutics, and yet God worked through them. In fact, this is an interesting study for you sometime. Go back and read how the New Testament apostles used the Old Testament Scripture, and you would never hire a pastor who did that. You would never hire a pastor who used the Old Testament to support what he wanted to support the way they did. Those passages have absolutely nothing to do. They provide no guidance except they were looking and found, hey, it sounds good, let's go with that. Let another take his place. We lost Judas, found this scripture, let's go with that. They would not, they would not have passed that seminary class. Why do I tell you that? Because God worked through their poor hermeneutical skills their poor study of Scripture, their misapplication of Bible verses, which this is clearly what it is, and he still worked through it to provide for his people. He works even through their failures to provide leaders for his church. That was kind of a tangent, but um, here's what's interesting. There were scores of possible candidates to replace Judas, and yet only two men were put forth. There's Matthias, who ends up drawing the short straw. And there's the triple-named Joseph. You know, I, I, can you imagine how hard it must have been to keep everyone straight back then? So over in verse 13, which we read a moment ago, Luke is recording the remaining 11 apostles. And when he, when he writes it, here's how I hear it when I read it. So he says, you've got Peter and James and John... Don't get that James confused with the other James, the son of Alphaeus. You've also got Judas, the son of James, but that's not Judas that, you know, killed himself. And then here in verse 23, he writes, They put forward two candidates. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Now, take, taking attendance <laughs> must have been a chore. The point is there were only two men put forth because while many people can serve as leaders in this way or that way, only few are called to lead as elders. I, I get excited for days like today when we're going to have the opportunity to elect a new elder. I'm eager for God to raise up new leaders. I, I hope you feel the same way. But in our excitement, in our eagerness, in our zeal, we need to be careful. Remember? of CPC, you need to be careful that you don't put forth men who possess all of the world's qualifications but are not called by God. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Paul says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And his point is that if the church puts men in positions of leadership who are not qualified and called, then a train wreck almost always follows. And so leaders, the, the kind of leaders that God has called to lead the church are few in number. And then here's the fourth thought. 
leaders must remember that it is God's choice. And so when we go to our congregational meeting later on, you're going to have a chance to, as members to elect Chris Stokes as an elder, um, Benj Mosier as a deacon. And the way you're going to do it is by secret ballot. Just a ballot that you'll write yes or no on their name, fold it in half, pass it in, we'll count them. But that's not how the early church made decisions. Again, this is where it doesn't pay to be a hyper-literalist, right? So one of the ways they made decisions, and it's pretty common, um, until, until the next chapter, Here's an interesting little historical study. The early church often made decisions through casting lots, but we don't see them ever casting lots again after the day of Pentecost. So they made decisions this way until they had the Holy Spirit, and then he helped them make decisions. But casting lots, uh, it was done a number of ways. Sometimes they would take sticks of varying lengths, and, and, and you would draw sticks, and I guess if you drew the short straw or the long straw or however they decided, that was one of the ways they would do it. They would take stones that they had uh, formed into uh, different uh, shapes like dice, and they would roll those, determining on how the stones fell. Sometimes they would take a coin. They would flip it. All of that is casting lots. And it was a way of deciding things. And, and I'm not really concerned for us to focus on casting lots as much as what they said in their prayer as they were casting lots. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. And so they, they, they held an officer election, but God is the one who chose his leader. You know, many times in the church, both today and I expect this was true in the early church, choosing leaders becomes a beauty contest. Or, 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 or we, we choose people men that we think would be the kind of leader that we would personally like. But God has a different criteria. He calls fallen men, sinful men, frail men. Th think of the kind of men that are highlighted here. Think of the names they have been given from history. Thomas the Doubter. Peter the denier, Judas the betrayer. God takes men like that and makes them leaders of his church. Why? Not because they're great. And, and this is one of the, uh, the upside-down, topsy-turvy ways that God does things. When the world picks men that they think are great leaders, they end up not being great leaders. And when God takes men that no one would pick to be leaders, he makes them great leaders. Not because they are great, but because they, they desperately rely on the one who is. And, and so let me just end with this. The, the men who serve as elders here at CPC, that they have a, a holy calling. They have a high calling. It's a calling that comes with its own set of trials and temptations. And I want to say to them, about eight of them in here, Brothers, you, you must not think much of yourself, but you must think much of Christ. That, that if you're a, an elder in the church, or maybe someday will be, you must fight for unity and you must fight against temptation. And then, for the rest of the body, CPC, pray for your leaders. Support them. I realize that may sound self-serving, and it is. Because I need your prayers. 
I, I need your prayers. And the greatest prayer and support that any leader can ever have is, is not the greatest, but he must have the support of those that he leads, but also the support and aid and help of Christ who is in us, empowering us. We're going to consider that next week. And, and the work of Christ in us is never more real to us than when we come to this table. And so in that, in that regard, the playing field is always level. That if you're a Christian, it doesn't matter whether you're an elder or not an elder. It doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for a month or for half your life. It doesn't matter whether you have a title or no title. The foot is level, or the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That each of us have the same Holy Spirit and the same work of Christ within us. And that's what unites us. Let's come to the table in that regard. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your grace and goodness to us that you have given us a mission to make uh, your name and fame known, and that you've given us leaders to help guide us in that mission, and that above all of that, you've given us the Spirit to empower us in mission. And so our prayer this morning, my prayer, is that each of us uh, would be humbled and grateful for, for what you've provided. And, and Lord, particularly for these men who help in distributing the elements and serving this supper with their elders or deacons, that, that they would realize that the only thing they have to offer, the only thing I have to offer is Jesus. Not myself, nothing in it for me, but Jesus, who gave himself for us. And Lord, I pray that that uh, knowledge would, uh, would rest and settle upon each of us. The only thing that we have uh, of any value and worth is Jesus. And so that as we feast on him once again, his death and life for us would be as real and as present as ever. Make it so, in Jesus' name, amen.